0: hello and welcome to Suite 212 extra our podcast only strand for programs that are recorded live or outside London don't fit our resonance 104.4 FM slot for whatever reason or in this case would violate almost every part of Ofcom's broadcast regulation guidelines I'm your host Juliet Jakes and today I'm joined by Hugh Lemmy making his second appearance on Sweet 212 Extra after our live show at Birmingham's Grand Union Gallery in December last year about queer consciousness raising from the 1960s to the present. Hugh Lemmy is the author of two novels, Chubbs, The Demonization of My Working Ass, and Red Tory, My Corbyn Chemsex Hell, as well as a collection of poems called Confirmed Pigfucker, all of which we're going to discuss on this episode of the show. He also writes on culture, sex and cities for Tribune, New Humanist, The Guardian and Architectural Review, amongst others. He's also the uh, host of a new podcast called Bad Gaze, which he makes with the writer and historian Ben Miller. Um, Hugh, I wondered if you'd like to, to just tell our audience a little bit about the uh, Bad Gaze podcast, which I've really been enjoying.
1: Uh, yeah, thanks. Well, it does exactly what it says on a tin, really. Um, each episode is a sort of half hour, 45 minute profile of um, a famous or infamous gay man from history where we look at his um, his life and his misdeeds and how that inter- relates to his sexuality, and then we use that as a bit of a deep dive to look into wider sort of issues around the way we remember gay people.
0: Great, yeah. I mean, I think it's a really interesting point that you make on the show that uh, gay male history, in particular, um, has maybe reached a point now where it's confident enough to talk about uh, to talk about the kind of misdeeds of certain certain gay men and not have to present every single. Um, Gay person as as a hero,
1: and you can learn as much I think about the um, about gay history and what gay people went through in the past by looking at a lot of these these men in their lives because actually quite often their their misdeeds or their, their the sort of things they did were quite often shaped as well by wider social attitudes towards their sexuality.
0: Yeah, um, and I think that's what's made the um, the show so compelling. I mean, you've you've mostly talked about people who uh, who are dead now, like the um, the SA leader in Nazi Germany, Ernst Röhm or um, T. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, but you've also talked about um, the American um, uh, public figure, Andrew Sullivan, who I think is the only person who's still yeah. still with us. Um, so to talk about, um, I mean, I want to talk uh, mostly about your new book, Red Tory, My Corbyn Chemsex Hell, which has just been published by Montez Press. But I want to lead into that by talking about uh, your previous book, which came out in, was it 2014? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, Chubbs, The Demonisation of My Working Ass, which listeners who are interested in British politics um, and the, its publishing wing will know, of course, is a play on the uh, Owen Jones book, Chaps, The Demonisation of the Working Class, and uh, Chubbs uses, um, uses Owen Jones as the central figure. Hugh, I wonder if you'd like to tell our listeners about the themes of that book, um, the way you use gay sex in the book and the political background of the book, because it's quite different to the to the one that Red Tory's written in, I think.
1: Yeah, it's about um, a young guy who lives in London, and it's about his relationship with the city and the changing city as as it was at the time, sort of around um, the turn of the decades of 2010 to 2012. And the way he sort of experiences the city, moving through it, changing, gentrifying, etc., and uh and then he meets this uh this journalist on grinder there's quite a lot of this about the way people use grinder as well uh this this like hot young journalist on grinder and as the city sort of descends into um a more oppressive um uh sort of post-riot police uh not police state but you know uh there's more of repression it's about his relationship with the police and and with owen and then it goes into a sort of um uh, weird fantasy um magic realism uh fuck fest
0: <laughs> yeah uh james butler um one of the hosts of uh Navara fm wrote a good piece on it at the time for vice where he said it's political pornography not in some mortifying michael gove in the whip's office way and not because it tries to make its sex right on and joyless the sex is filthy uninhibited and completely uninterested in any agenda except pleasure but it's political because of the people it involves the class and taste lines it crosses and especially because of the way chubbs is getting off is placed in direct violent conflict with other uses of the city all these things class struggle the cult of nigel farage the uk independence party leader at the time and our obsessive relation to technology are hung around the characters desire to cram as much sex into their day as possible um, something that's a really interesting uh, way into um way into the book um which incidentally it was the only novel i read while i was working on the final draft of uh, trans memoir which i was doing at the time um and i you know i wasn't wasn't reading much at the time because i didn't want any of the texts i read to change the voice of the book so i don't know whether uh, Chubbs came into <laughs> came into that book or not uh maybe i'll leave it to people who've read both of them to decide um But, you know, some of the things that interested me about Chubbs were the atmosphere of the 2011 riots, which you've just alluded to coming into the text, um, and particularly David Cameron's draconian reaction. uh, You know, people famously getting four years inside for stealing bottles of water. Um, Cameron, or members of the Cameron government, I think uh, Louise Mensch might have been one of them, calling for social media to be shut down. uh, Lots of kind of ostensibly liberal Journalists calling for the army to to be sent in, um, and and that sort of sense of sense of chaos in London that I think ran through to things like the big um, anti-fascist demo in September twenty thirteen that followed the spike of um, English Defence League activity following the killing of uh, Lee Rigby in Woolwich. Uh, I think all of those things inform the um, atmosphere of the novel. So I wonder if you'd like to maybe expand on that a bit. Um, yeah, uh,
1: I think I felt really, uh, I had a real lack of hope at the time of writing it about the possibility of, uh, I just thought we're going to continue this relentless, um, race to the bottom in terms of, in terms of everything, in terms of, you know, like quality of life and wages and, and union organizing. And, you know, like it was, it was this both sides like uh, Labour and Tories and were just, just sort of chasing each other down to really be shittier and shittier to towards the idea that things could could get better and it was all obviously cloaked in this language of management and then to see like the riots emerge in that moment um, and that peeled away I think these two for me these these two different aspects of the left one of which was a sort of the left that dominated the media, like the sort of commentariat, which was uh, nice and lovely and twee, you know. Like um, I, I don't even remember around that time this uh, the comedian uh, Marcus Brigstock and someone tweeted like, "What? How do you? How are you a good socialist in twenty ten or whenever it was? How do you? How do you be a good socialist?" And he said, "Buy ethically, bank ethically, you know, recycle or something like this." And that this was sort of the vibe. And then when the riots came around, to see this peeled off into two sides. One of which had like a strong class analysis, and in general, like a much clearer and more honest relationship towards um, race and racial discrimination, and and the way it intersected with poverty in this country. And then the other side, who were just twee. They just like they the the vibe was like I'm left because I'm like, I'm a nice guy, you know. And then as soon as as soon as the riots happened, to see these commenters who were had made their careers out of being like comedians or just nice people, and writing this sort of a twee Sunday supplement sort of um, journalism, calling for the army to be bought out, and and these like openly fascist declarations of of enforcing state power and potentially killing people on the streets for you know for criminal offences, and that to me was like a real blast when I was writing it, and that, uh, that's something that was sort of in the back of my mind all the way through writing the book, which is why why at the end I really wanted to focus on this, um, this look at. Uh, this look at civil disorder in, in a different in a different way, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and I really recall very very strongly the sense that um, anyone who was looking to have a kind of a class or racial explanation of the riots was kind of being forced into this subaltern position. You know, David Cameron uh, was very aggressive in telling people not to think about the material causes behind what was happening, um, and you know, in the way that Cameron's political rhetoric tended to work just repeating the same handful of phrases over and over again in the hope of drumming them into people as to receive wisdom. Um, And, you know, I remember this being put very starkly by the surreal football account on Twitter of all people who were, you know, comedians, basically, Um, just saying something along the lines of, 1981 the tory policy through the ages 1981 no such thing as society 2011 why do these people have no qualms about taking our stuff yeah um and to me it did seem it did seem that simple but this was an opinion that was you know very uh very consciously being kept out of mainstream discourse and i think yeah like one of the things about chubbs that really interested me is is what you say about this kind of this This kind of two-tier reality and i think this is something we will expand during the show um you know you you've talked about um you know these twin territories these online social spaces that somehow exist separately from physical ones um and occasionally get superimposed onto each other um, and this kind of schism between the the two and hence the um the uh the sort of the the difference between sort of Owen Jones as a public figure on television in the pages of the Guardian and the Independent, um, and as somebody who's using something like Grindr and you know, of course, quite prolifically using Twitter as as he does, um, I think is quite interesting. So, I wondered if at this point you'd like to talk a bit more about why you used Owen Jones um, specifically as as the central figure in this book and what it has to say about. Opinion journalism, which I think by the early 2010s felt like it was everywhere and was merging with social media in very strange ways.
1: Uh, why did I use Owen Jones? I don't know. I thought it'd be funny. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I thought he's an interesting character. And uh, I think he's he, probably his public uh, profile is very different now. But back then, um, I, I guess maybe I probably unfairly got it into my head that he had an aspect to his public writing about sexuality that was a little bit um we're just like we're just like you you know we're just the same and uh uh we just want you know our rights and to you know settle down and blah blah, blah. and i i very strongly felt that that um that we're not the not the same that that isn't the, that isn't the dynamic between heterosexuals and homosexuals in society um now having seen him Uh, talk more I feel like maybe he's changed or maybe I just was unfair in the first place but also I felt like much like in the current book like I I, I'm really interested in the way that the British comment comment media really structure discourse within British society and I thought he was really interesting because he was one who was coming out in a really unapologetically left way uh, and quite confrontational um so i thought it'd be funny as well to just yeah use i don't know i guess um i guess create a sort of fan fiction version of his book where you look more into the sort of subjective um realities of lives that he might be writing about anyway
0: yeah i mean i think that's that's really interesting um you know i was i was doing a lot of comment journalism at this time between 2010 and 2015 uh, and certainly i felt that i had to shave an awful lot off my public persona uh, and particularly my politics Um, and you know I was sort of you know as someone who I don't know where exactly I would position my politics but you know something close to sort of communist or situationist uh, movements than to you know what was the mainstream of the Labour Party at that time certainly Um, and you know was constantly struggling with what might be the acceptable limits within mainstream discourse where this um, Overton window was Uh, and I think something you said about Owen Jones um, in an interview when Chubbs came out uh, with uh, Lizzie Homersham, who was, who was on Sweet 212 recently, uh, I think is really interesting. You said, in many ways, Jones is supposed to be dull here. What's really interesting about IRL Owen Jones's interactions with those who claim a more radical position than him is his constant willingness to engage with them, which speaks volumes about his political project, as I think he sees it, one of bringing together various different political positions into a cohesive leftist challenge to a dominantly right-wing or liberal media environment. I don't think he gets enough credit for that position, to be honest, and I think a lot of people to the left of him do him a disservice by not at least tacitly acknowledging that that's his political project. That's not to say that their criticisms of him are often not very valid, though. The point is the tension doesn't come through the different political positions, but through the different attitudes towards communicating that politics. He's improved right about that strategy to a certain extent. There's definitely a gap in the public discourse for a reasonably traditional, stout socialist position. Um... And that was, like, 2014.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, he was proved right, right? Absolutely.
0: (laughs) I mean, it was a bit of a joke for a lot of us on the left, right, Like that Owen would constantly encourage people to join the Labour Party and uh, lots of people, myself very much included, just saw the the Labour Party as a bit of a write-off at this point. I mean, to be fair... um, I was at a New Statesman uh, centenary party with, with Owen and others in 2013, and uh, Ed Miliband was giving a speech there, and we weighed up the pros and cons of walking, you know, for 10 seconds across the room to go and meet Ed Miliband, the leader of the Labour Party at the time, and decided we couldn't really be bothered. <laughs> um, so, you know, he knew there were there were problems with the Miliband Labour Party as well. Um, but, yeah, I do think he's um, he's been proved right, really.
1: Yeah, I agree, yeah.
0: Um, can we talk a little bit about your use of Nigel Farage in the book yeah
1: um, the reason Nigel Farage is like he is in the book is because um, and I think he's a sort of outlier, not an outlier, like a trendsetter really for British politics is um, his entire public persona is like a complete fabrication of about authenticity and being uh, uh, this authentic in order to I guess, lead a populist movement about challenging the people. Like, he, it's, he's, his public p- persona is a is a complete lie. Like, he's not an outsider figure in any sense. You know, like, where'd he go to school? Like, Dulwich College. And then he became a stockbroker. And then he has this, like, yeah, this um, super authentic, uh, you know, I just drink pints and I smoke fags and I eat sausage rolls and, you know, like, I'm normal. I'm one of you, et cetera. And I think that's, like, became like a really, that's a way that a lot of politicians establish uh, their credentials, not just to be as authentic voice of the people but to build this idea of like this common sense that what they're saying is not ideological, it's just common sense and if they can back it up with that sort of um, public persona, then they don't have to make the arguments around the case at all, It's just common sense. And that actually, he, th- there's very little difference in my mind between Nigel Farage and um, Owen Smith, for example, (laughs) um, because his entire uh, campaign against um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn was a middle ground common sense. And you can tell he's common sense because um, he doesn't know what a cappuccino is. He genuinely genuinely tries to persuade people that a, a Westminster politician in his 30s in 2015, 2016 doesn't know what a cappuccino is.
0: Yeah, I mean, these are things that were all covered very well in uh, Joe Kennedy's book Authentocrats, which we're going to have an episode out on shortly. And uh, yeah, Owen Smith, for anyone who's forgotten, was uh, challenging Jeremy Corbyn for the Labour leadership after the EU referendum in summer 2016. Um, I just want to read a little bit more of James Butler's piece about your use of Nigel Farage. Uh, James Butler's article uh, talks very interestingly um, about in pre-revolutionary france in the sort of mid to late 18th century there are all sorts of rumors going around about the behavior of the upper classes uh, that weren't really allowed to become public knowledge um and were kind of unconfirmed but fed into the revolution of 1789 and butler writes it's in this tradition of secret lives that we have to read chubbs's fictional farage nursing a secret loathing of his supporters driven to illness by endless pints of ale possessed by a secret longing for european food and sophistication a Delia Saffogliatella and a glass of light Italian rose that he has to hide to maintain his public image, and addicted to pop- poppers at the behest of a continental dominatrix called Gutrot S and M. Um, and yes, those uh, those scenes in the book, of course, uh, are very entertaining. Um, so you know, this book came out in the run up to the twenty fifteen general election. Um, in which you know there was a lot of uh, huge anxiety about how well the UK Independence Party were going to perform. Uh, Nigel Farage stood in South Thanet, um, and one of the people competing against him was Al Murray's pub landlord character. Um, Farage didn't win the seat, uh, but the that particular contest was subject to lots of discussion about Tory Party overspending and breaking electoral rules uh, in that election and uh, of course David Cameron and the Conservative Party won that election outright uh, which surprised a lot of commentators um, who thought there would be another hung parliament, who thought that Ed Miliband's Labour might even sneak a victory because people were so fed up with the Conservative coalition the Lib Dem coalition. Um, I actually predicted that the Tories would win a majority on the grounds that you know as we've just talked about the Labour Party policy platform in those years between 2010 and 2015 was so weak and unpersuasive and so reactive, um, it was really hard to see any positive reason to vote for them at all. Um, and actually, um, I spent the general election day of 2015, I spent two hours at T- Hattie Town Hall uh, due to a uh, administrative minister in H- Hatley Town Council, um, spent two hours at Hatley Town Hall and then cast my vote for the Communist League, or I think <laughs> just about helped them over the 100 mark but um, it really did feel utterly futile, it was one of the most pointless and depressing things I've ever done I think, uh, but you know so Cameron's surprise victory, I think the Conservatives won by about 12 seats or, or so a small majority but a majority which um, Dawn Foster also predicted, we'll talk about Dawn in a minute Um, you know, this victory was a surprise and there was a sense that things were changing. Um, Ed Miliband stood down as Labour leader, uh, Nick Clegg resigned as the Liberal Democrat leader and Nigel Farage resigned as UKIP leader for three days. Um, UKIP actually got quite a lot of the vote in that election, I think four million votes, which translated to, well, they didn't win any new seats um, due to the the first-past-the-post electoral system. Um, But there was a sense that you know something would have to change but it seemed like it was the other parties that were were going to change um i want to read uh my response to to that election result which i was asked to write for 3am magazine um in a you know they asked several writers to to write a response to this result and uh, i decided to build on uh, a short section from patrick keeler's film london uh, which of course is set in 1992 and is just a uh, sort of travelogue of the city um, in that year uh, and the 1992 general election was, was similar in that people thought the Conservative government was was tired on its way out. Uh, Neil Kinnock also kind of pulled the Labour Party quite a long way to the right uh, in the hope of winning over these swing voters and, and failed to do so. Uh, so this was my response to the election in a piece called London 2015 uh, and it opens up with a sentence that you also quote in Red Tory. So, the middle class in England had continued to vote Conservative because in their miserable hearts they still believed it was in their interest to do so. Robinson began to consider what the result would mean for her. Her flat would continue to deteriorate and her rent increase, buoyed by a 13% share increase, announced before the Conservative majority was even confirmed. Foxton's would send prospective buy-to-let landlords around ever more often disturbing her in her freelance work, until one of them bought the flat, hiked up the price, and she would have to move again. This time, most likely, she would have to leave the capital, along with others who had more right to call London their home, and her migrant friends from across the world, displaced by the financial class who wanted easy access to the city in Canary Wharf. Her tax credits would be frozen, making her living standards drop more st- steeply. The crowing of Osborne and his friends in the post-Leveson Inquiry media about the economic recovery would become even more nauseating. The bus service would get worse, and the cost of rail travel would continue its exponential rise, with an array of providers that apparently offered choice, but in practice made things more complicated. Deliberately so, she suspected. Long-distance fares would be pushed up further by the logistics of more than one company facilitating journeys, and by their unrestrained pursuit of profit. She would hear the word customer more frequently, not just on trains where she'd come to expect it, or in the job centre where her advisor had first called her a customer in summer 2014 and she had scornfully challenged it, saying that she was a claimant, but also in the health service, yet more of which would be turned over to profit-making firms under a competitive tendering process. She dared not think about what would happen to the staff and students at secondary schools, adult education centres or universities she would find it harder to supplement her failing income with temporary public sector jobs, as she always had. She asked how the artists, actors and musicians she knew would structure their lives in a way that allowed them to create, especially as she wondered how many councils would follow Newcastle's lead of March 2013 and pass 100% cuts to their arts budgets. There would be more drunks pissing in the street when she looked out of her window and more people sleeping on those streets when she walked home at night. The only thing likely to change... That she that The only thing likely to change might be that local businesses would install anti-homeless spikes in their doorways, knowing that while their first usage in Manchester last year had provoked a social media outcry, their 50th probably would not, and she felt that the practice of dealing with undesirable public opinion by riding roughshod over it would likely be maintained until the last resistance was broken. She thought about how her disabled friends would be affected by another £12 billion of welfare cuts, a figure she hadn't imagined still remained to be removed. She wondered how David Cameron might top his gesture of preaching permanent austerity from a golden throne. But if 13 years of new labour, followed by five of the Conservative-led coalition, had taught her anything, it was that things could always get worse. And this morning they had. She thought about her lesbian, gay, bi, trans, queer and intersex friends, whose bars and clubs would continue to close, whose drop-in centres and counselling services would continue to have their funding taken away, and how progress would continue to be framed in terms of how many openly gay male Conservative MPs there were, or how many trans women had stood for election for the UK Independence Party. At her last recollection, the numbers were respectively 13 and 2. Momentarily, she gave thanks that she'd begun her gender reassignment via the NHS during the last year of Gordon Brown's government, hating the fact that the ongoing imposition of a Thatcherite society gave her so little choice but to prioritise her individual well-being above all else. As Adorno asked, how do you live a good life and a bad one? She may well suffer in future, she said, from the closure of support services for those who experience sexual assault or domestic abuse, even if she wasn't hit by the bedroom tax or cuts to council tax benefit as many others were. Perhaps, in East London, those services would be replaced by more of those crass cafes that took the name of whatever was there before. They would pop up gradually, the demographics would continue to change, and she'd see more and more obnoxiously phallic monuments to capital appear on the horizon, struggling to keep track of their cloying, overfamiliar names as she walked, head down, along the high street. Over the next five years, she would watch as the Conservatives attacked anyone or anything they suspected of breeding class solidarity or insurrectionary thought, unions and universities, artists and academics, and wondered where she would go. It wouldn't be back home. She had left her small town in Surrey, aged 18, at the earliest possible opportunity. But on her most recent return, the first thing that faced her at the station was an advert for the St. George's Day Festival, a handwritten poster with an image of a man dressed as a crusader at the top. The middle class in England had continued to vote conservative because they still believed it was in their interest to do so. And she wondered just how miserable their hearts could become. So that was a pretty pessimistic uh, response to... Um, To the Conservative victory. And one reason for my huge pessimism at that point was that the Labour Party's defeat came partly from the fact that they were completely wiped out in Scotland. Um, They went from, I think, 50 seats to just one at the end of the election after the Scottish independence referendum in 2014 and the um, concomitant rise of the Scottish National Party, Um, the SNP were often known as the Tartan Tories in Scotland and had made a rhetorical feint to the left, at least kind of opposing the coalition's austerity programme. And the reaction of quite a lot of Labour figures, I think, in the immediate aftermath of that defeat, was to say that they hadn't moved far enough to the right and that Ed Miliband, as he'd been painted by the Daily Mail and other newspapers, uh, was far too left wing uh, and was seen by the public as a dangerous communist, um, which of course was how they painted his father, um, given that the policy platform of the Labour Party at that point could in no no way, not even in the stupidest fantasies of the right wing press, be, uh, be presented as such. Um, but then something quite unexpected happened. Um I don't it certainly wasn't something I saw coming. I don't know if it was something you saw coming the um the ascension of Jeremy Corbyn to the Labour leadership.
1: No I, no not at all obviously. Um I I think very few people would have predicted it. Most of all Jeremy Corbyn he seemed very surprised to have won.
0: Yeah, I mean he said he expected to at best get about 20% of the vote. Yeah. Um I think Stephen Bush at the New Statesman who, you know, he's politics are not my politics, but he you know, has a much more sociological approach than a lot of people in the political centre. And he predicted that the Labour Party would move to the left. Um, and of course, he was right. The introduction of one member, one vote in the Labour Party leadership elections after the Collins report of February 2014. Which, if uh, I'm
1: right in saying, was was an attempt to quash the left right, by stopping the union bloc. Yeah. yeah,
0: that's right. Um, yeah. Uh, the Classic law of unintended consequences. <laughs> um, so that was brought in. And I think James Meadway uh, was one of the first people to see the political potential of that. Um, but that meant that the um, the Labour Party leadership was chosen with 15% of the Parliamentary Labour Party as MPs, nom- having, you know, as the threshold for for nominations. So it meant that anyone wanting to enter the race had to get 35 nominations. Uh but then the actual leader would be chosen in just a one member, one vote system with registered supporters and affiliated members through trade unions. Um Corbyn got the thirty-five nominations um hours I think before the um before the process closed. Uh and a lot of the people who nominated him were people who just felt they should widen the debate and they were so confident of beating the left that they were happy to Happy to include him. Um, I looked again uh, preparing for the show at the list of people who nominated Corbyn, and there's some really surprising um, surprising figures, you know, as, as well as long term allies of his Diane Abbott, John McDonnell, Dennis Skinner, and uh, people who've become prominent since younger leftists like Clive Lewis, Kat Smith, Kate Osimore. Uh, there are also some kind of like right wingers like uh, Frank Field, the uh, blue Labour figure John Crudders nominated Corbyn, uh, certain people who've become sort of harder to pin down like David Lammy and Emily Thornberry, um, and party elders like Margaret Beckett, who
1: she apologised after did a that was a big, the biggest
0: mistake for political life. Yes. Um, and of course, you know, Corbyn very quickly built momentum after the campaign began in June 2015. Um, New members were able to join until August 2015, and Corbyn was well ahead in the polls by then. Uh, and Owen Jones argued in The Guardian that the reason why Corbyn was so popular was because he offered a coherent, inspiring, and crucially, a hopeful vision uh, for the Labour Party. And I think the coherence actually is really important there. I think the the problem with the Ed Miliband Labour Party wasn't even so much where it positioned itself ideologically, but the fact that it was quite hard to tell what it was for and who it was for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as Corbyn uh, surged into the lead, uh, as lots of people remember, there are interventions from Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Alistair Campbell, Jack Straw, David Miliband, uh, all telling people not to vote for Corbyn, and pretty much all of them, but especially Tony Blair, have the effect of making people vote for Corbyn. Um, and so Corbyn uh, won the uh, one leadership election um, with 59.5% of the vote in a four horse race. Um, you know, 250,000 people uh, voted for him. Uh, and, you know, I joined the Labour Party at that point. Uh, David Cameron said that Corbyn's win would make the Labour Party a threat to our national security, to our economic security, and the security of your family. Um, and, um, you know there was this sense that things by by even september of that year this sense that things were starting to crack a bit um the newspapers had launched an absolute assault on corbyn and his supporters from the start of the campaign to the finish um all sorts of um you know really quite absurd things they attacked him for for not dressing respectfully enough or bowing his head enough at the cenotaph they attacked his foreign policy positions quite relentlessly not really realizing that lots of people you know at least broadly agreed with uh, with a lot of them they attacked him for not going to watch England play rugby which was a move that I 100% identified with um and you know these absurd things no matter how small and then uh, one of the most seismic um, revelations, I think, in the history of British political symbolism in um, in September 2015. Um, I think we'll elaborate on this more. I want to bring you back in, Hugh, because I've just talked for a very long time. Uh, I wonder if you would like to read your poem, Funeral, from your uh, volume, um, Confirmed Pigfucker, which will... I think, reminds us of a lot of the details of this particular incident. I'm
1: going to put on my poetry voice. (laughs) Please do. Pour out the bolly, cut up the coke, Prevent the journo from tweeting your dirty joke, Silence the press and with muffled drum, Bring out the porker, let David Cameron come. Lord Ashcroft circles his his rumour a corker, Spinning on Sky the message, He fucked a porker. Call up the shrink, priest or faith healer and imagine Dave Cameron balls deep in a squealer. He was my north, my south, my least, my most, my porking week and my Sunday roast. My noon, my midnight, my small, my big, I never thought he'd fuck a pig. The star is not wanted now, shut up everyone, shut down the mail and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and dry up the bog and remember the PM face fucked a hog.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a worthy addition to our Sweet Two One Two Poetry Strand, <laughs> which has included works by Wilfred Owen, Richard Kipling, Benjamin Perret, um many others, and, uh, and and now you. I mean, this poem came out of an impromptu composition on uh, Dawn Foster's Facebook page, um, and you know, we'd all we'd all had a go at adapting uh, famous works of poetry uh, to. To discuss this particular incident, and um, you 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 entered that poem uh, and you won, which annoyed me because I was just about to get going on the love song of J. David Pigfuck. <laughs> um, but yes, of course. So this is the um, the revelation on the front page of the Daily Mail that um, that was drawn from uh, Lord Michael Ashcroft's memoirs uh lord ashcroft of course was a, a donor to the conservative party who um i can't remember if he lived in the caribbean or if he just had all his money there but anyway was well known to um to have been playing kind of hard and loose with uh with his taxes um and um he um you know, found that the donations he'd made to the Conservative Party hadn't brought him the level of influence that he wanted. And his response was to um, to write a book called Call Me Dave about the, uh, the life of David Cameron. And the Daily Mail um, serialised this book. And they thought, I think, that the thing that would scandalise readers was the revelations that David Cameron had smoked marijuana at university. Because really, what kind of monster would do that? <laughs> um, and of course, the thing that everyone picked up on uh, was this line about how David Cameron had um, had put his penis inside a disembodied pig's head as part of some initiation ritual for uh, something called the Piers Gaveston Society, uh, which, of course, is named after the early 14th century nobleman who um, carried a lot of um, influence with King Edward II um, in the early, early 1300s. His lover, no? Uh, his lover yeah, yeah absolutely um and you know this sort of completely upset the balance of power um in in the sort of um in the governance of medieval england which relied on this balance of power between knights and barons and another nobleman and of course the monarch and you know we live in a very different world now of course so You know, this incident was was just sort of seized upon by people on the left because, I mean, firstly, it's just staggeringly funny and the schism between the way people like you and I saw it and the kind of people we talked to online saw it and the schism between the way um, people in Britain's media class and political class uh, sought to deal with it um, was really what gave it a kind of poetic truth. I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit more about the symbolism and about the response to it.
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, I guess there was two, there was a couple of responses, one of which was, yeah, as you said, the one more on the left, um, which was that it was A, hilarious, and B, contained whether it was true or not was somehow true. Yes. <laughs> as you say, a poetic <laughs> truth. Um, and then the other one was, uh, I guess from the sensible centre or the sensible left, they'd probably regard themselves as, which you still see, which yeah, is still like the anti-Corbyn sort of movement in the British media, um, and probably finds its expression now in what are they called Change UK, the independent,
0: uh, yeah, Change UK, Chuck? the independence group. I think Chuck Tig, yeah. Um, I'm,
1: I'm not bothering to really learn it because hopefully it'll disappear soon. I or mean, I really,
0: really enjoy making fun of them. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's very easy to make fun of them, but it's also incredibly enjoyable.
1: But you know, and certain um, uh, um, Guardian columnists who insist on uh, the uh, every the literal truth of everything saying well well can you really say this is true i mean who cares like it, it, there was it chimed right it resonated in a way that the book was full of rumors that didn't resonate but this one resonated um i think one of the ways kind of the one of the ways it resonates and one of the reasons he could get away with it and survive it as a political thing is because um because it kind of it was totally believable do you know what i mean like it, was, it didn't actually really shake anyone's idea of who David Cameron was, it just confirmed it, or you chose not to believe it. Um, but even if you didn't believe it, it wasn't, I feel like if you came from a different class background, if you were, you know, came up for the union movement, for example, and became an MP, and then a photo emerged of you, age 21, having sex with a pig, or a rumor came out about it, it has an air of perversion, whereas I just assume that people who go to Oxford are like that anyway. You know, like it, like like uh, I didn't know specifically that this was a ritual that they might do, but makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean Cameron and George Osborne, uh, but I think particularly Cameron um, and his whole government, of course, were such a sort of avatar for sort of upper class privilege, which I think sort of merged with with you know Victorian ideas about aristocratic decadence. By that point, of course, the the Victorian social settlement that the aristocracy could basically do whatever they wanted as long as they kept out of politics whereas of course you know what we had now was the aristocracy doing whatever they wanted but also running everything um but sort of continuing to get away with it and i think you know just laughing at this kind of symbolism was you know the left was still in a fairly subaltern position then despite the ascension of corbyn it felt very precarious it felt like you know the full weight of the labor party if not the entire state was going to do all it could to tank this project um of a left-wing labor party um but i feel like maybe
1: that that instant as well like kick-started a a ball rolling which is rolling now of these completely wild moments where things like this happen and then like two weeks later like you just forget about it it's just happened and then and and it, it's got increasingly absurd as a result since. And really, that's I think what my new book Red Tory is really about is the way that this is all the, these sort of political moments are all manifest um, in the media, and the way that the media like, then creates uh, a um, spectacle of like constant, like completely weird you know like mind-bending moments where you just think how has this become a normal reality this thing you know for example like you still see on like roundups of like 90s politics Neil Kinnock falling over in a wave right but now you know like two years ago um, Farage or three years ago Farage led like an entire flotilla of boats up and and had like a, a fish fight with Bob Geldof,
0: yeah, do you know what I mean. <laughs> On a bridge, the image of Bob Geldof <laughs> making the wanker side yeah. And I like, okay, Farage, that's just yeah. that's
1: just something that happened, and you know, like you, you've forgotten about most of most of these things. So as as these things were just happening in the press, like I was constantly revising the books, like, oh, how do I get this scene in now? Like this this completely wild thing that's happened.
0: Yeah, I mean, I you know a lot of a lot of people in our kind of online circles will well remember. Uh, James Butler just posting something saying, "I'm going to Italy for a few days. And I'm not going to have much uh, internet. Um, let me know if British politics becomes any more absurd by then." And we were like, "Oh, we will, James. Have a good time. Bye." And then a few days later, he just logs back on with the words, "A pig," and nothing <laughs> else. Um, which was was pretty uh, pretty extraordinary. No, no, there was
1: something more biblical about it. Like, and James's tone because he was he was in Scotland and he was up a mountain, and he came back down from the mountain and the world was changed.
0: <laughs> it really was. I mean we'll move back on to the points about absurdity um, and onto the book in just a moment i mean i just want to give a little bit more of the sense that actually as well as the sort of absurd symbolism you know this symbolism was given its kind of power by the the sense that there was this really heightened sense of crisis i think between the tory re-election in september 2015 and the eu referendum in june 2016 um you know, anecdotally, my friends and I noticed really kind of mounting homelessness very soon after the Tory majority was confirmed. Yeah, very quickly, yeah. um, Oxfam uh, went to South Wales. Um, Again, Dawn Foster wrote about this in in The Guardian. that um, Oxfam had supported more than a thousand people in Wales because the effects of austerity there were so severe. Uh, obviously, the rise of food banks at this point was a very big thing. Uh, David Cameron's own constituencies in Oxfordshire were writing to him about the effects of austerity, which he was quite surprised by. Um, He actually had a bit of an argument with Ian Hudspeth, the conservative leader of the Oxfordshire County Council, which covered Cameron's own constituency in Whitney. Um, Cameron was saying that he was disappointed by the council's proposals to make significant cuts to frontline services. Um, And Hudspeth points out that the council had already culled its back office functions, slashed 40% of its most senior staff, um, nearly 3,000 jobs, And explained that, as George Monbiot put it in The Guardian, he'd already flogged all the property he could lay his hands on, but would like to remind the Prime Minister that using the income from these sales to pay for the council's running costs is neither legal nor sustainable in the long term since they're one-off receipts. Um, You know, Ian Duncan Smith resigned from the Department of Work and Pensions because even he felt that the latest cuts to disabled benefits uh, were, as he put it, a compromise too far. And David Cameron was also named in the um, Panama Papers, um, admitting that he benefited from an offshore trust set up by his father on which he would sold just before he became prime minister in 2010, making a profit of £19,000, uh, something called the Blairmore Investment Trust, um, which he sold off. Um, And also admitted that he didn't know whether the £300,000 he inherited from his father had benefited from tax haven status uh, due to part of his estate being based in a unit trust in Jersey. Um, And he was asked about this while he was campaigning for the UK to stay in the European Union. Um, So there was this kind of rising sense of crisis at the same time as this rising sense of, as you say, this sort of this mediated absurdity that was was often very entertaining uh, and quite addictive i think for a lot of us and i think you know these these two things in tandem form the background for red tory my corbin Chemsex, hell um so i you mean know, we've already touched on some of the themes of the book but i wonder if you'd like to discuss the plot um who the central character is a little bit about chemsex for listeners who might not be familiar with that particular subculture and yeah this this weird new reality that was kicking in in 2015 to
1: 16 um, yeah so the book follows a character who is a type that you will encounter uh, if you go out on London gay scene or uh, certain parts of London gay scene or if you are in like um, uh, politics around sort of gay movement or LGBT rights or Probably the labour within the Labour Party. I mean, certainly within the Labour Party. I'm, I'm not a member, so I wouldn't I wouldn't know. But I've heard heard that. Um, and this type is like the guy who got in too late. Like w- w- probably went to like Russell Group university or Oxford or Cambridge, and you know saw this path through um, the NUS and then getting into the party and becoming a SPAD or something like this, like a special advisor and you know uh looking for their safe seat in 15 20 years time and how basically i was it i thought what happens if what happens to those people now that the rug has been pulled out from under them because you know they probably gave up a lot of their university life towards towards that aim probably made sure they didn't get any photos taken themselves in compromising situations you know this was their life plan and now suddenly they're faced with this uh left labor party so it was it was thinking about that type and also um, I have on good authority that that there is like within that sort of labor uh, right gay scene like people there's a constituency of people who like are really into chemsex. For those who don't know chemsex is like a sort of gay scene/ slash trend um, where people go to parties over the weekend chill outs and um, take you know, certain drugs which increase your uh libido well no and or rather they remove your uh inhibitions i'd say um and i mean i don't really have a moral take on it like i like i, I i'm sure there are, there are i mean there, there are problems like people do have problems of with addiction within it but like that's in some ways not here nor there with the plot the pl- um uh anyway so that's a that's like a scene and uh, the plot of the book is this guy who has had this rug pulled out from under him, and, um, and him meeting a young left communist and, and like an communist, and how this guy changes his life. And at the same time, there's this subplot of oh no, the plot is to do with like yeah, like this cr- sort of crazy media world of these increasingly weird moments that that are unplaceable and airy and strange and hilarious like Cameron fucking a pig. Um, and ha- So basically the, the drugs and the, and the headlines merge together and he finds it increasingly difficult to place himself. Uh, yeah, that's the basic plot.
0: Yeah, um, the book has an uh, epigraph from Thomas Mann's uh, famous short story Death in Venice which says, passion is like crime. It does not thrive on the established order and the common round. It welcomes every blow dealt the bourgeois structure, every weakening of the social fabric, because therein it feels a sure hope of its own advantage. Um, was there any particular reason for, for including that as the... Uh, as the
1: <laughs> no, I was reading just reading it at, at, when, at the time when I was sort of right about two-thirds of the way through writing it, and um, I felt like it chimed with both this and the earlier book, and I felt that I was... Um, uh, there's a trolling aspect to it, do you know. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like a troll, like, like, yeah. Let's just fuck things up and then see what happens. Like a chaotic aspect to it.
0: Yeah, and the the book certainly does does feel chaotic. Um, you know, Tom Buckle, the the central character, who's described as the ambitious young moderate Labour apparatchik rising happily through the party bureaucracy on a diet of bottomless brunches, legitimate concerns, and drug fueled Blairite sex parties. Um, you know, he certainly finds himself more and more kind of confused by what's what's going on he's got a circle of um of gay labor youth friends who are all kind of moderates or centrists or blairites whatever you want to call them um and yes he meets otto the uh the young the young radical um and is trying to situate himself within this within this landscape um i think this might be a good moment to have a reading reading from the book so maybe you could talk about this uh this section and why it's important to the plot, and just give a bit of the background before you read the the segment.
1: Sure. Um, so one, the basic conceit, or one of the basic conceits in writing a book, is um, what if the, the 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 accusations of the sort of centrist and right wing papers regarding momentum Corbyn, the Labour movement, were true? Like, what if they were a red horde who were coming for your children and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera? And one of the like hilarious sort of authentocrat things, like. I'm sure you've noticed over the last couple of years, is a lot of these sort of discussions around class, um, obviously this being Britain and nobody ever being able to talk about actual money and work and the actual dynamics of what class is, instead they talk about food and clothing, but especially food. So yeah, for example, Owen Smith earlier pretended not to know what a cappuccino was, calling it a posh coffee, a posh frothy coffee, um, and then this thing, um, I think Wes Streeting um was campaigning because Corbyn said that they weren't going to have McDonald's at the Labour conference because McDonald's were union busting. Seems like a good enough reason not to invite someone to a Labour <laughs> conference. And uh, he'd been saying like, it just goes to show how uh, he's out of touch with the uh, with the real working class in Britain who love love McDonald's. And uh, this he said something along the lines of, this might go down well in, your, uh, in Islington's trendy falafel bars. And I just love this idea of like falafel, you know, like, Kebab shops being this like out of touch, trendy metropolitan latest thing. So, so uh, th- this is a c- continued thing throughout the plot that momentum uh, in this in this uh, in the book uh, are armed and dangerous, and their weapon of choice is um, croissants and other patisseries, which you can only get in trendy East London. Uh, anyway, at this point in the scene, uh, uh, Tom, who's the main character and the, the young Blairite, is meeting with. Uh, Uh, Samantha, who is uh, a co-conspirator in a sort of Labour rights uh, movement against against Corbyn, and um, they've just popped into McDonald's to get something to eat. Sharing their second conspiracy of the evening, yards from Horse Guards Parade, they were so enamoured with each other's secret knowledge, they didn't hear what the other diners had heard. A slow thudding moving down Whitehall from Parliament and up to Trafalgar Square. Sirens were normal in this part of town, as were the whistles of police outriders. A man who had just left the restaurant pu- pushed back through the double doors, clutching his brown paper bag. ''Lock the doors!'' he yelled to the manager. ''Quick, lock the bloody doors!'' Two service assistants came round the counter to see what a commotion was. In the street outside, people could be seen running up towards Nelson colu- Nelson's column. A manager in a suit joined the two serving staff before rushing them back, uh, both back into the restaurant. Their arms waved frantically, guiding people away from the front windows. Away from the front of the store, please. Move back, move back. The manager fumbled his keys trying to lock the door as some of the larger men working in the kitchen came forward to offer their help. Tom and Samantha sat, back, sat towards the back of the restaurant, looked up from their collusions. What on earth is going on? Samantha asked. Reds, in it," the, ch- the chef said. Coming up from Parliament. Reds, Tom asked. What sort of reds? "'Falafelists, I reckon,' he replied, dragging a table towards the door. "'Can you move back towards the kitchens, ladies and gentlemen, for your own safety?' He called out towards the customers, still loitering at the windows, nervously trying to have a safe view of the kerfuffle. "'You have to let me through,' Samantha said to the manager. "'I'm sorry, madam, for your own safety, you need to go back to the back of the restaurant and away from the windows. We've been given advice and training from the Metropolitan Police about exactly this sort of situation.' The street outside was empty. Cars and traffic had been diverted.' Pedestrians had long scarpered from the menace. Sirens rang around from a distance, but the only presence of the authorities was an occasional riot-clad police officer, backing away from the threat. Tom and Samantha refused to move. ''I'm in the party,'' she told the manager. ''Well, perhaps you can have a word of your comrades,'' he said in a sardonic tone, jamming a thick metal chain through the door handles. She didn't appreciate it, but stayed back a little, eyes shifting from Tom to the windows. ''The eerie calm of a deserted London street,'' Christmas or civil disorder, not a soul. Suddenly, an enormous crash. A croissant exploded into the street, thrown from a considerable distance, detonating on impact and spreading a shower of pastry across the road. The manager dove back from the window, covering his face and head. In the back of the restaurant, a woman began screaming in shock. Two big, burly kitchen workers sat with their backs braced against the front door. It's always the workers who get hurt, isn't it? Samantha whispered to Tom, nodding in their direction. The plucky pair ducked behind a banquette. Please don't panic, ladies and gentlemen, the police are aware of this situation. The manager called, but the end of his sentence was cut short, drowned out by enough croissants pitched from the unruly mob of liberal metropolitan snob thugs, crashing this time against the window of the bus stop. Shards of reinforced glass and thick buttery pastry crashed against McDonald's windows, setting off the building's alarms. The noise inside was deafening, the high-pitched screech of burger alarms, the crying and wailing from the customers at the back of the restaurant, the intermittent thuds and bangs of the volley of patisserie pitched full force up the busy London street. Outside, riot cops formed a line across the road. They'd been issued with long shields the first time in years. Tom could see them from the corner of the window, thudding their batons against the shield wall, a line of Anglo-Saxon defence against French tyranny unchanged in a millennium. The mob appeared to march on unabated. For a moment, it looked they were continuing past, like they were continuing past the burger joint, and Sam and Tom looked out at each other, hopeful at their chances of sneaking away. The first few lines of the protest were thick with troublemakers, face masked. They shook their red banners, black emulsion painting slogans dribbling across them towards the line of the brave bobbies. This is how the Nazis started. A voice shrieked from the back of the restaurant. In the middle, a large upright banner fluttered against the strong, cold wind pushing through the city. Tom tried to make out what was painted on it. Two sturdy poles held it aloft, but which trade union could possibly back Corbyn's red falafel thugs? As the mob slammed against the shield wall, the banner twisted in a tide of hate. Tom was sure it was written in English, but for his life he couldn't read the characters. They jumbled in front of his eyes. One moment he picked out the word Corbyn, the next Mutiny, the next Karl Marx, the absolute boy, Diane Abbott, before the letters shifted again. A crude painting of a croissant and kitchen knife, or was it hammer and sickle? A daub slogan. No more gammon, we demand quinoa. Tom rubbed his eyes and felt a sense of nausea rising. He hadn't touched any Roman marching powder for a week. He thought the hallucinations had died. He was getting clean, he could swear he was clean. And yet here he was, sick and stressed, trapped by the red falafel guards when he was just trying to get a quick a quick quiet bite to eat in his favourite dining establishment, which he visited regularly because he was just a normal kind of guy, and the world shifted beneath his feet again. What was up and what was down? He squinted again, making out the crude watchword inscribed on their banner. Islington or death? The crowd bunched up now, trapped from both, lines, both ends by lines of police and dogs, as snatch squads began to pick out ringleaders and drag them from the crowd. The restaurant was totally surrounded by an increasingly angry crowd. The manager grabbed Tom and Sam from behind their banquette and dragged them towards the serving counter. From the crowd, Sam heard a yell. Here, look, it's a McDonald's, the symbol of all that's wrong with our neoliberal capitalist establishment, despite being favoured by many working-class folk who must nonetheless be suffering from false consciousness. Let's free them from their chains! The building shook as another volley of three, four croissants, possibly a pain au chocolat, slammed against the window, cracking the bulletproof windows. Tom poked his head above the parapet, seeing what damage had been done. "'Fuck, they're trying to get in!' he shouted over the noise of thuggery and absolute disregard for parliamentary process. The doors were shaking, the lock was broken, and a thick chain and padlock the manager had used as a backup looked in danger of straining to limit two. They had to get out of here before the elitist mob broke through and tore them limb from limb. That's when Tom saw him, pushed up against the window, his cute little nose ring tinkling against the fractured plate glass. Otto. Radiant. His face wasn't like the others, picked out with the plain and dowdy features of hate. He looked pained by his presence there, Tom felt. The space around him blurred, just Otto, visible. And now, a quiet moment, Tom's heart began to race. His face pounded with anxiety. He'd ignored his calls and texts, and now he was here? This must be something, he told himself. Despite feeling no shame at his dining choices or class background, Tom pulled his head low against the counter. If Otto saw him, would he be furious? What right had he to to be furious at Tom, though? Why did he feel so guilty? No matter, Otto was turning away, shielding himself from the cream explosions as all manner of shoe projectiles bombarded the restaurant. That's when Tom managed to read his hand-scrawled slogan on Otto's placard, held aloft into the crowd. Total bottoms for falafel socialism. Suddenly, a disturbance behind the cowering gang. A stream of riot cops smashed into the restaurant from the back entrance. Get out, get out, get out, screamed the lead officer, shooing the little group towards the kitchen ro- kitchen door. They were safe just at the moment a profiterole finally smashed through the plate glass window, showering the riot officers in glass and cream. Out in the fresh air, Tom couldn't believe what was happening. A line of police led the crowd away from the riot as another line ran in the opposite direction, batons drawn. How did things get like this, this bad? How did such a fracture in reality happen? How could Otto be... One of them. Samantha dusted herself off and took a bottle of water from the police liaison officer. But Tom stood there on the cold of the embankment, silently, his hands clutched to his head, trying to come to terms with his absolute disaster. Otto was a total bottom.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Hugh. I think that's um that's the most I've laughed on uh, on one of these shows since my um multiple attempts to read Robert Conquest's poem about George Orwell to. Uh, Owen oh, Hathley and Fatima Ahmed a few months ago. Um yeah, I mean uh, I read the novel over the weekend. I think that was my favorite scene. It was certainly the um one of the parts of the book I found the funniest, although it's far from the only part of the book I I found hilarious. Um I was actually um with someone and reading a lot of the passages to her um this weekend and we were both just uh, just in in hysterics. I mean it really is is obviously it's a very funny book and it's, you know, it's In case anyone hasn't clocked by now of course it is a is a work of satire um and you know we've touched on this already but uh, can we talk a bit more about how you structure if you want we can talk a bit more about how you structure the book to deal you know people are endlessly saying that contemporary reality is unsatirizable um you know Armando Iannucci who wrote the thick of it which of course is the satire that everyone reaches for for the sort of ed miller band david cameron years and the whole point about the thick of it is that it could be either the conservatives or labor or the liberal democrats it doesn't matter who the party is that's sort of the point um but you know there's a sense that you know people are polarizing austerity has polarized people you know this this concert this centrist consensus which of course you know for most of us never really existed anyway but you know there's a growing awareness that it is no longer sustainable if it ever was um and this sense of sort of satire becoming quite niche now i mean you know that passage in your book resonates with me because you know i have been um you know very much in in critical solidarity with corbyn and the labor left and with this project um and, you know, what that passage plays on is the schism between the way anti-Corbyn uh, kind of centrist and right wing mainstream journalists portray the movement, as you've said, and the reality of it. I mean, I went canvassing for the Labour Party in the 2017 election, and that was when I really first met kind of like grassroots members of Momentum. And they were like 50 year old school teachers who'd made sandwiches for everyone yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, brought like thermos flasks and classes and stuff. It was it was, you know far from the way you portray it here but of course you know you use all these signifiers like falafel and islington that a lot of the mainstream media um you know have have no idea how these things actually work i mean it's often pointed out that corbyn's constituency covers holloway and islington and even if um you sort of completely buy the image of islington as this utterly gentrified sort of richard curtis film um you know holloway is one of the poorest areas of London if not the country. Yeah, I think actually
1: um Islington is one of the most unequal yeah. uh um, constituencies in the country.
0: Yeah, and of course the Grenfell Tower disaster brought home um you know how areas of the country that are perceived as you know utterly kind of upper middle class or upper class um you know of course contained sort of huge and as it transpired you know utterly lethal levels of of inequality but I want to talk more about um, the sort of difficulties of, of producing satire in the the current context um, uh, someone called uh, Johan Koshy, is not a writer I know uh, but wrote quite an interesting article about online satire for vice in May 2017 so during the 2017 general election campaign when of course people, are the online left in this country had an awful lot of fun producing kind of memes um, you know Corbyn's own sense of humour really came out in that campaign and was a source of great joy for a lot of people. Um, but uh, there was this sense that the, the satire was becoming becoming quite niche and, you know, um, you can flag up uh, Twitter accounts like the Streatham Rovers uh, account, which is like a joke football team which pokes a lot of fun at various different parts of football culture you know the popularity with online teams amongst what are often called of non-league teams amongst what often gets called uh football hipsters uh the way that football clubs at pretty much all levels will just accept money from absolutely anybody with no regard for ethical considerations whatsoever um the way football journalism works the way football twitter accounts work all of these things are brought into this twitter account and it's very very funny but You do have to have a certain kind of left perspective for it to work, I think. Um, The same goes for uh, Simon Hedges, the um, uh, Orwell underscore fan on Twitter, um, who is a parody of uh, centrist journalists. And the person who does the account, who's not named in the Vice article, says that, you know the account has a teasing sense of credulity says a few people think it's real hedges gets a lot of anti-blair flack from mainly well-meaning people who think he's just another dickhead journalist and of course it's playing on the fact that there seem to be so many a disproportionate number of centrist journalists on twitter compared to the number of centrists you meet in actual life um So the creator says, the people on Twitter who really get hedges are usually under 40 on the left, have at least critical support of Corbyn and the Labour Party, and most crucially know the types of Twitter personas Simon is meant to be satirising. And in the article, it flags up a sample tweet um, and it says, my own analysis of Hillary's harrowing defeat has come to the following conclusions liberals are great and we should carry on as normal <laughs> uh, which you know we, we laugh but that's pretty much been their reaction to everything that's happened over the last few years. Um, Riley Quinn from the uh, Trash Future podcast says I think quite perceptively that the main thing that's characterised a lot of Anglo American liberals over the last few years is this absolute refusal to process a new piece of information. Yeah. And um, I think that's that's fair and um, in the article uh Koshy talks about the way that a lot of satire relies on a set of assumptions about how things should be and contrasting it with how they are and that's what the thick of it plays off I think this idea that there is this kind of like this slick um PR style of politics is essentially good um and you know the schism between this ideal of this slick politics maybe personified by a figure like Barack Obama um or indeed Aaron Sorkin's West Wing um, which is very popular with a certain type of liberal or centrist journalist. Um, and, you know, the schism between that and the sort of ineptitude of the people that Malcolm Tucker is trying to corral into being a competent political outfit and the sort of weird imagery that comes out of that. That's something the thick of it very much plays off. But, um, you know, in this article, Koshy talks about, um, you know, when society loses its idea of what politics should look like, traditional satire becomes sort of meaningless. Um, and a lot of the most effective online satire you know doesn't recommend anything about how things should be hmm. um you know where the the reason why simon hedges is so funny um for example is it's a very good parody of how centrist journalists actually are there's nothing recommended there about how they should be
1: yeah i mean absolutely like i um I, I think a lot of the best parody at the moment just restates like in a slightly different different worded, like maybe maybe with some of the sort of justifying um, patina taken off. Exactly what their p- point is. Like there is nothing that Simon H- 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 Hedges says that isn't isn't. He just repeats the opinions, really. But he but he does say like yeah, having stripped off the the veneer a little bit, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um... And I mean, you know, you we we talked about this before the show, and you talked about how a lot of this satire creates an audience through through shared jokes, and obviously some of these come into Red Tory, but maybe Red Tory will create new jokes for people as well.
1: Yeah, um, there's a uh, architecture. There was an architectural writer a critic in New York called uh, Herbert Mouchamp, who wrote about gay audiences, and he said that one of the real um, yeah tragedies, one of the many real tragedies of the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s in New York is it destroyed the gay audience, uh, which I think is a really valid and intelligent point, which is that to create um, to create certain types of artwork, you need an audience that is educate, educated in the subject at least, or like well-versed, and can understand the references that are bought and the nuances and slips between between manners and stuff. And I think with satire and especially satire at the moment, uh, that's that's vital. Um, and I uh, yeah, so I think that's that's one aspect of it. And, and when I was writing this book and also um, Chubb's, I was like writing it for an audience. Like I was like my audience, which I was thinking about a lot, was people I follow on Twitter. That's basically it. And also they the most. The, the, uh, now I feel like satire is like with, with, especially with Twitter is really collaborative people are adding to stuff the whole time like these are in jokes that are created through people riffing with each other and helping to pull out some of the truths behind this like ridiculous um, political discourse that we have and that is both joyous to watch like it's really fun like, like that's the only reason why you'd still be on Twitter in this day and age right is to see like how like just normal people are like so much more intelligent and humorous than the people who are paid to do, to do that. Um, is is what that's that's one thing I felt very strongly about it, and also, um, I feel like there's a. Um, uh, well, sorry, what's my other point? Yeah, that, that also that um, as things get more separated or dis or disparate um that that's the only place that those satires can really exist because i don't feel like people just i don't feel like people say in the center don't find um simon hedges or real politic or some of those other threads funny they just don't can't read it in the same way that for me writing this book when i looked at the sort of attacks on Corbyn and like their satire satires about Corbyn from the center I just don't get it like because it doesn't ring ring true in any way way to me whatsoever so I think it might be at times like maybe I've taken as taken as real some of these attacks on like you know Corbyn's red thugs maybe they were satirical I don't know like that's that's this big disparate gap in these audiences and so yeah like I feel like the audience create the audience is like a key part in creating the satire, and then the satire satire itself creates the audiences. So, so that now, especially on Twitter, like a lot of those conversations um, uh, exist in inside this language of satire, which, which for me rings very true, but could only really be understood if you if you're an extremely online person, um, and so, some of it has now bled into real life for me. For example. Um, there is what I think is probably one of the greatest political threads ever on Twitter, which is oh, I've forgotten now who posted it, but it's um, uh, Tim Farron as the pub landlord. Uh, as a pub landlord, he's a nice, amiable, easygoing guy, but tries to fit into every single uh, interaction or payment in his pub. The fact that the waters turn turning the frogs gay.
0: Yeah, we should maybe elaborate on this for <laughs> anyone who isn't as extremely online as, as Hugh and myself. So what these were, it was a series of sort of quite authenticratic um, publicity photos, wasn't it, of Farron pulling pints at a bar like your yeah. kind of average mm-hmm. everyman, you know, exactly the kind of thing that would be satirised in the thick of it five five or ten years ago. And, um, you know, these have been captioned with... Uh, Tim Farron was basically found... Um, you know, was a evangelical Christian. Of course, he was MP for your, your constituency where you grew up in uh, Cumbria. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tim Farron was sort of, you know, noted to have, um, I think, use interns from a gay cure charity and also to have um, entered into dialogue with, I think, the British Humanist Association on Twitter. But it was uh, like one tweet. It was like one tweet years. which was okay. spun out into this whole kind of thing, which again drew on... A comparison with of course, the far right um, um know, Alex Jones. social media personal, YouTube personality Alex Jones yeah. from Infowars, um who you know, had this whole thing about chemicals in the water turning, frogs gay, and sort of extremely online, left Twitter turned this into something similar for tim farron and just made sort of tons and tons of memes
1: but now like um, um whenever i see tim farron sometimes you know like in my dad's local paper or whatever you know stood on a uh stood on a train platform complaining about something or i don't know doing whatever good work he does in the community in my head he's he's literally one second away from nudging the uh, train conductor and asking him about if he knows about the frogs
0: <laughs> well i mean i did an episode a sort of crossover episode of sweet 212 with real politic about their radio play tim peaks and walk with me and the satirical device there is quite similar you know there's a sense of there's a sense of kind of delusion and the kind of the the sense of just the general weirdness of british politics you know runs through the whole thing not least because you know i mean the title is a you know is an obvious pun on twin peaks Far and walk with me but you know the sort of the the aesthetic and the sort of feel of Twin Peaks is brought into the episode. Um, and, you know, there's a sense of confusion that that runs throughout. And, you know, the whole the whole the whole play, it's about two hours long, is about, you know, Tim Farron basically getting into politics in order to deal with the gay frog menace. Um as well as just promote milk, um, which again relates to some images that were shared on um, Twitter in the run-up to the 2017 election of Tim Farron making some sort of bizarre expressions in this really weird, um, some sort of milk promotional um, photo shoot. Um, And again, the sort of the humour comes from the repetition, right? I mean, you know, RealPolitik and others made so many memes about Tim Farron that, you know, on the sort of online left, no one took this guy seriously at all. But it was quite rare in that this did actually cross over into the mainstream media during the 2017 election campaign. I mean, you know, the the media didn't really have a compelling attack line on Farron looking weird while holding milk. But they did ask him about his views on gay people and it kind of tanked his campaign, really. And again, a lot of centrist journalists were saying in the run up to the 2017 general election, oh, forget about Corbyn and his weird Islington falafel throwing thugs uh you know the real opposition is tim farron and he um you know his campaign collapsed very very quickly partly because of um of the way the online left rather than take him seriously just treated him as a figure of fun
1: yeah i also um uh i think at the moment as well like it's it'd be very it's very hard to make it, or that a more general satire is really really difficult like um the sort of have i got news for you aspect of like satire where you take the piss out of both sides equally doesn't work because i feel like the the there's a mismatch between the center as it appears in discourse the way that you know news the, the center of like newspaper opinions is you know like the probably the guardian right um because you have so many you know like very very right wing papers and there's not really a left left voice but then actually the center of like probably discourse in the country as the election of corbin and then his um uh, his results in the last polls show that there is like a significant left aspect to like british pe- in br- british culture that's complicated and you know is not like consistent and has some like big blind spots to do with race and immigration etc but then this the then the, the centre of comedy can't be there. You know, the centre of comedy has to be you know, to fit in with broadcasting laws has to be on the right. So you yeah. have to say like um you know, like uh take 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 the piss equally out of um Diane Abbott and then like some like absolute bell end who's calling for like, you know, kids to be imprisoned on the border. It's as if they're the same and it just falls flat. Yeah. And also they just like some of them are just crap like you just you can't listen to the now show it's just um, it's just unbearable to listen to like the smugness that comes with you know oh well the truth is somewhere in between like the the truth at the moment is not somewhere in between the two the two sides like you've got to you know pick a side.
0: Yeah and this is it and I think the Corbyn project you know it has sort of exposed the fact that the interests of say Richard Branson are not the same as the interests of you know somebody on unemployment benefit which I think a lot of liberal and centrist politics has tried to skate over i mean you know the lib dems have put out material recently saying you know not just for the many not just for the few but for everyone and you know not denying people opportunities on the ground their class background means not denying it because they're middle or upper class as well and you know obviously the corbyn project has this very clear sense of who the malefactors are and corbyn isn't really seeking you know it's quite obviously not seeking power in the same way that you know tony blair was or Chakramana seems to be or you know David Cameron or whatever and you know the movement is more important and it has brought about this sense of there being kind of clear sides with ethical divisions between them um you know in a way that you know the thick of it could not work now mm-hmm. I won't talk much about the thick of it but I'll recommend the um episode of the we don't talk about the weather podcast recently on the thick of it and we'll tweet that out uh with the show um yeah, But, you know, I watched in the end of 2016, I always used to watch Charlie Brooker's end of year roundups. And there's a part of the show where Charlie Brooker uh, talks about that whole thing with like Jeremy Corbyn on a virgin train, apparently not being able to find a seat and this argument uh, between Corbyn and Richard Branson and virgin trains. And, you know, Charlie Brooker trying to do this kind of both sides approach to this comedy. Uh, which, yeah, again, you know, a few years earlier. Uh, might have read quite differently but it just really it was very hard not to read it as brooker just siding with with where the power is and one of the nature of the corbin project has been to show where that power is i remember somebody saying very early on it might have been you that if the corbin project achieves nothing else it will Bring a lot of the um, the contradictions to the surface, and it will just you know expose how awful a lot of the people in British politics are and British political discourse are. And I think it it's definitely done that.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, like like I said, like I'm not a member of the Labour Party, and and like there there are things that are really messed up in in the on the left of the Labour Party, um, especially in its treatment of migration and things. But for me, it's not that I'm like a pro Corbyn, but like I'm just like. Uh, I'm not critically pro Corbyn, more as much as like radically, like aggressively, uncritically anti the, the, the media. Like it's it, like I hate, I hate it. I hate it so much. Like the way that they can smuggle, like the distortion of things that it, 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 in an attempt to left bait. And for me, like that's what coming from somewhere on the left, which is you know maybe not so Labour oriented. Um, if if this is what Corbyn's going to get who you know in and then it's been said a lot but in, in a sort of social democratic country in scandinavia or something would be entirely you know his, his corporate tax rate he's proposing is uh, is lower than it was under thatcher you know it's, he's like the, this isn't a revolutionary movement whatsoever which is on, on the problems of it but if that's what you're getting for saying that that you know you're uh you're, you're you're basically the next poll part what hope is there going to be for anything else like you that like just yeah so for me it's like an anti-left baiting position which i think is what the book is really based around yeah
0: and it's the same for me absolutely i mean i you know i i am a labor member and i feel very very ambivalent about it and i'm not sure i'm going to renew it um because i was a student member when i was doing my phd and i've now finished my phd so um so i'd have to pay the kind of full rate uh and you know i might decide to you know use that money elsewhere but um i'm i'm exactly the same you know i I have a sort of a strong dislike for centrist media that comes out of the fact that i worked within it for sort of 10 or uh, between 2010 and 2015 um, and was sort of pushed out by a kind of transphobic centrist backlash, um, partly against what I did and partly against the emergence of trans people in mainstream culture as a whole. And social um, media and social media. And, uh, you know, so I have a, a, you know, very strong dislike for these people based on that and we talked about that on an episode of real politic um and also for their yeah their reaction to corbyn and the labor left which to me seems like exactly you know like you say like the tamest response to what is necessary and the sort of devastation brought by austerity that we've talked about if they
1: end up with a corbyn lo- government they'll be lucky frankly yes, compared absolutely. to what should have, should happen yeah
0: no i completely agree um you know it's such a such a mild response um so I think we should sort of wrap things up now. So I just want to ask you, um, do you have, um, you know, Chubbs and Red Tory feel to me, like loosely like part of a series? Would you, would you want to expand it into a, a trilogy? If so, what approach do you think you might take? Um,
1: oh, that's a good question. No, it's not conceived as part of a trilogy. Um, and I don't know if, I, I guess it depends what happens in the next five Four or five years whether maybe maybe there'll be a big shift in in the tone which is why there's two different books i I guess um i'm not averse to it um but it's not where i really want to concentrate my um my thoughts at the moment and also i don't live in london anymore i don't live in the uk anymore and a large part i think of getting the mood of the books and writing about it was just through direct experience which feels very different if i'm going to write about it from a distance so uh instead um, I do have a new book actually which I'm just um doing the edits on at the moment which is very different which is uh, a sort of apocalyptic fiction based upon the mystic visions of a 12th century nun called Hildegard von Bingen uh, so I've been reading a lot of um uh weird christian <laughs> mysticism at the moment which is uh yeah it's very different i mean there's some crossovers to do with you know like the, the nature of a uh, shifting perceptions of reality and drugs and visions and uh, and things but it, it i think it'll have a very different tone
0: great well um that's all we've got time for today on sweet 212 extra um thanks a lot for listening uh, i've been your host juliet jakes i've been joined in the um studio by hugh Lemmy, uh red tory my corbin chemsex hell is available now from montez press along with uh, hugh's previous book chubbs uh that we've been discussing um thanks for joining us um We'll be back on Resonance 104.4 FM very, very soon. Um, But for now, thanks for listening. Take care. Goodbye.